1: What kind of a show is this? It's a show
2: where we just talk. Let's get
1: rocking! five, four, three, two.
3: The Omicron variant might be more contagious. It's very likely that it probably is here. There's no reason to think that America has been immune from getting this variant.
4: But in answering some of the criticism that you've received, you said, I represent science. Uh, So uh, could you clarify that? No, I wasn't
5: being pejorative to anyone. And I'm certainly not. I mean, I I can take criticism and I'm not being pejorative against critics. I mean, I I can take criticism. Here it
1: comes.
0: Let me finish. You do not know what you are talking about quite frankly period it's all fun to get a vaccine you are getting uh, getting a shot uh, and it's and it's a pinch and a poke uh, and it's uh it's not not all that much fun
1: just like so many of you i saw the news about a sudden change in cnn prime time and so i'll say it i would like to see cnn put a woman in that 9 p.m spot
5: i'll have to find a new way of saying this i am here to guest host for chris como's time slot, or the time slot that had been Chris Cuomo's, and I don't take any pleasure in it.
1: Members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Jack Riccardi, 4 till 7, News Talk 550,
0: KTSA, and FM one zero seven one. KTSA News Time is 407 on this 7th of December 2021 80 years ago 80 years since Pearl Harbor we'll be talking about that and many other things today glad you're here thanks for stopping by all the breaking news we talk about it we catch you up on it we talk about what's going on in our lives we've got a new JR poll so um there's been a another court ruling. A federal judge in Georgia has ruled against President Biden's coronavirus vaccine mandate for federal contractors. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, maybe you're one of them, who really just don't know from day to day whether they can go to where they work, go to a job, show up here, show up there, what's the rule going to be. Uh, but this uh, judge in Georgia uh, struck down the uh, mandate, Uh, saying that the court is unconvinced that the president has the authority to direct these actions. In recent weeks, OSHA has been stayed, CMS has been enjoined, the contractor mandate now has been enjoined nationally, the federal employee requirement has been kicked down the road to next year. But while vaccine mandates are losing and losing and losing and losing, uh, there's something new going on in the world of mask mandates. The governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, who, by the way, was just uh, photographed at an LGBTQ event over the weekend in Washington with no mask on, is thinking about making the mask mandate in her state permanent. Oregon would have a permanent mask mandate. The Oregon Health Authority is discussing a permanent indoor mask mandate. One of the executives for the OHA tells television station KATU that the potential permanent indoor mask mandate could be repealed in the future. Permanent, he said, means indefinite. It doesn't necessarily mean permanent. Did you get that? Permanent might not mean permanent. You know, we've gone from Tell us when we need to wear a mask to tell us when we can show our face. We shouldn't even call them mask mandates anymore. We should call them face mask mandates. You know? But the thing about all of this, that I was just saying this to a friend of mine this morning, I am not that surprised by what politicians are doing. I am more surprised by how many Americans are taking it. I am more surprised by how compliant and meek and sheep-like some people are. I didn't know we had this many sheep in our country. And and don't get offended if this doesn't apply to you, if the shoe doesn't fit, but I'm just saying I'm, I'm less surprised by what the politicians are doing, as we talked about with Neil Oliver yesterday. The They've always had the box. They've always wanted to open the box. Now they've opened the box but i'm I'm struck by people wanting to be bossed around, wanting to be dominated, wanting to be submissive and um obedient and and getting very angry at you and me. Here's a woman named Molly Page Mumau. she uh, describes herself on her not now non-existent Facebook page uh, as educator, wife. Union advocate, wine drinker, Team Pfizer. I love, I love when people brag about which brand of the vaccine they had. That's, that's hilarious to me. You might as well wear your underwear inside out on the outside of your clothes so people can see that brand too. I'm a Fruit of the Loom guy. You know, I, I it's, it's incredible to me, Team Pfizer. But this is what Molly wrote about a guy who was. Um, Objecting to the vaccine mandate She wrote this on her Facebook page Molly wrote, screw this guy And screw them all Who are about hiding behind Religious exemptions Because they don't want anybody to tell them What to do, people tell you what to do All the time and you do it This is such BS, he and his ilk Deserve whatever comes their way Including, she writes Losing jobs, getting sick and maybe dying From this virus But in the meantime, he's going to put all the people around him in danger. I don't know why the GOP doesn't just take those guns they love so much and just start shooting all of their constituents who think this way. It would be quicker and ultimately safer than putting me and my family and friends at risk. So there it is. Die, you scumbags who won't get the vaccine. Die. I want you lined up and shot. If you object to the vaccine mandate, that way the rest of us will be safe. Molly is not only a teacher and a semi-pro wine drinker. She's on the board of directors for the National Education Association. And if you don't know, the National Education Association is a pretend union that exists in states that don't allow teachers to join an actual union. She's on the board of directors. No wonder she's already deleted her Facebook page. wonder what they'll have to say. The uh, New York Times does some reporting on the Omicron variant. Uh, Let me just share a little of this with you because I think it's interesting. Uh, The COVID-19 virus is spreading faster than ever in South Africa, the country's president said this week, an indication of how the new Omicron variant is driving the pandemic. But there are early indications that Omicron may cause less serious illness than other forms of the virus. At a major hospital in Pretoria, they report that patients with the coronavirus are much less sick than those they have treated before. Uh, Now, the new variant is still new. just discovered last month. More study is needed before we can say much about it with confidence. But the the New York Times reporting gets to a point that we don't hear enough of and that we're not going to hear from people like Molly, and that is that we have more than two choices when it comes to the virus. The two choices they would have you believe are lock everything down, mask everyone up, or we all are going to die. There are so many things in the middle. And I don't know anybody who's reasonable, who's semi-intelligent, who doesn't see the wisdom in taking some of the the in-the-middle precautions. Maybe you stop travel to a country where they're uh you know where they're having a hot spot but forcing everyone to get vaccinated or they cannot participate in their society in response to a variant about which we don't know very much and with which we don't have very much experience is crazy these people are crazy and we don't have to follow them they can be crazy We don't have to be crazy with them. So the thing about Omicron that we don't know is long-term, will the consequences of it be more serious? It certainly seems to transmit faster than Delta. But if it's not as serious as Delta, that's worth knowing. That's what the early indications are in South Africa. In fact, I thought this was interesting. Um, So they have a lot more cases, but deaths are on the decline And um, a lot of the cases in this hospital I mentioned are people who were already in the hospital for things unrelated to COVID-19. They were incidentally found to have COVID-19 while in the hospital, meaning we only knew they had COVID because they were tested. We wouldn't otherwise have necessarily counted them as COVID cases because we wouldn't have known they had COVID. And a researcher, this is again from the New York Times, a researcher walked into the COVID ward and found a scene unrecognizable from previous phases of the pandemic. Out of 17 patients, four were on oxygen. That's not a COVID ward for me. That's like a normal ward, he said. That's interesting. They can be crazy. We don't have to be crazy with them. So we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to talk about Pearl Harbor 80 years later. Victor Davis Hansen, the historian who's frequently on our show, has been thinking a lot about this. He points out that the uh, the real story of the Pearl Harbor attack, December seventh, 1941, is that the Japanese, he writes, underestimated American strength and overestimated their own. And what a lot of people don't ever really say out loud about Pearl Harbor is that it wasn't meant to start a war. It was meant to preempt a war. The Japanese had watched... Us watch Europe fall to the Nazis, and we did nothing about it. And we were much closer to Europe than we were to any country in Asia. I mean, close diplomatically. And so the Japanese reasoned, if the Americans won't fight for countries with whom they have great bonds and brotherhood, they probably won't fight us for control of the Pacific. Why would they fight in Asia? They'll let us have it. And if we wreck their navy and we embarrass them, they'll sue for peace. That's what it looked like to them. That's how we looked to them. That's why they picked this fight, which in retrospect looks insane. Within six months, we were bombing Tokyo with the Doolittle raid. We geared up the greatest industrial comeback, buildup, In the history of civilization, we built more ships in three years than all the navies in the world combined. And it was all because we had projected weakness. It was all because we had shown a face to the world of a country that wouldn't and couldn't fight. And of all the years that we've talked about the Pearl Harbor anniversary, I feel like this year that is relevant. That, that ties in right now. You know, whenever we talk about electric cars on the show, um, I get somebody who calls me or writes to me and says, why, why do you hate electric cars? I have one. You should, and it's not, I don't hate them. I don't hate them. I'm, I'm questioning some things. I don't hate your car. Okay. It's an interesting fact that if you go back to the history, the very beginning of automobiles, um, there were electric cars almost from the beginning. The New York Times had an article in 1911 describing electric cars as the ideal solution. And um, so they're not new. And they've always been an option. And they should be an option. But the reason I bring this up is because I wonder what the next mandate will be. I'm not talking about the next variant of COVID-19, although I'm sure there will be another one. But what else will the people that are mandate happy mandate next? And that brought me to thinking about electric cars. Right now, where are we on electric cars? Well, you're being urged You're being warned, right? So you're being urged to get into electric cars, and you're being warned that pretty soon that's what the manufacturers, that's all they'll make. The government has said it, and the car companies have all set dates that are all somewhere in the next roughly five to ten years where they're switching over to all-electric production. Now, this reminds me of the early days of COVID, because in the beginning, you were urged and you were warned. But when that wasn't good enough, when you didn't act fast enough, when you didn't comply enough, then they, they went to mandates. And I have the feeling mandating electric vehicles, punishing people who hang on to their gasoline-driven car, making it hard, let's make it hard for them. Let's only give them one lane. Let's let's say they can only drive during certain hours. Or they aren't allowed to drive on this road or that highway. That's only for us enlightened electric car owners. To, see, I, I to me, this is a new toy, and they're going to play with it. You know how it is. The new toy is the one that gets played with the most. Mandates are the new toy. I wonder what, what do you think. What will the next mandate be? It'll be something that they are tired of trying to persuade you to do, and you're not taking the persuasion. Um, here's an expert uh, in uh, Business Insider. Electric vehicles won't save us. We need to get rid of cars completely. So maybe we're going to go from mandating electric cars to just telling people, hey, you can't have a car. Sorry, we're, we're, this is about the planet. We can't have cars, we can't have personal use vehicles. It's so wasteful. I don't care what you're running it on. You could be running it on the tears of a conservative. It's wasteful, it takes up resources and space. This guy was writing about how during the pandemic it was so nice that the streets were empty and you could just walk around in them and ride your bikes and not have to even look both ways. He loved that. I found it creepy and depressing. (laughs) But he he was like a pig in mud. No cars. What will the next mandate be? What do you think? Two ten five nine nine, fifty five fifty five. Something that they're going to give up on the persuading and just, you know, move on to the next thing. So from now on, when you don't take the persuasion, when you don't take the, the hint, when you don't take the suggestion, well, we can probably mandate it. We can declare an. We have to declare an emergency we have to put out some scary information there'll be some people that may at first want to hold out and resist we'll scare them we'll threaten them by the way we can use the leverage of their job their employment we can throw in some emotional talk about the children it's all about the children you know we only we only everything i'm telling you to do i'm only doing it because i care about kids do you care about kids? Do you like kids? I like kids. I mean, I, I'm just telling you this because I care about the children, and if you care about them, you'll do exactly what I tell you to do. I mean, I wonder what it'll be. Be interesting to see. We're, we're going to see it. It's going to happen. Merry Christmas! Remember, we have a few more days left for rapping with Jack. Please help us help these families. Go to ktsa.com. Hit that button for rapping with Jack. Uh, we announced or we learned that the Department of Justice is suing. Uh, Texas over the redrawing of the boundaries for U.S. House districts, uh, something that is driven by census data. And uh, in making the announcement, uh, the Department of Justice says that uh, Texas is violating the 1965 Voting Rights Act. On the other hand, we know that uh, states uh, always draw and redraw their boundaries, uh as a result of census data we all also know historically not only here but all around the country those lines are drawn by whichever political party uh has uh the majority is is running the legislature in that state which right now in texas would be the republicans brandon waltons is managing editor at texasscorecard.com he's on our ktsa Connecticut quality water softeners newsmaker line so uh brandon what besides the fact that Texas is a thorn in their side, uh, this administration. W- what is, What are they alleging Texas has done here?
6: Yeah, so, of course, Texas has just gotten done recently with the uh, 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 redistricting process. happens every 10 years um, where they draw the districts for the state house, state senate, congressional districts as well. Well, now you've got the D- Justice Department, Biden's Justice Department, of course, led by Merrick Garland, uh, suggesting that uh the boundaries drawn by lawmakers specifically for the Texas House and for Congress um uh deny kind of latino and black voters uh, uh the right to vote it's kind of a, a silly thing but say, it's essentially saying that those districts right um don't give minorities the proper opportunity now it's important to note that of course partisan redistricting is something we see everywhere and that's actually something mm-hmm. that the supreme court has already said Um, as recently as 2019, is a process that is okay for the state legislature to engage in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I guess they're alleging that in drawing the lines, Texas could have drawn them to make a district or districts that were, quote-unquote, safe for a Hispanic or African-American candidate, right?
6: Right. And that's essentially kind of what they, they allege. The, the the fact of the matter is, however, as you look at these districts and you look specifically as they were drawn um, by the legislature this year, um, a lot of this was, you know, the, these arguments that they would be filing a lawsuit were literally talked about before, uh, you know, before these maps were even drawn. This is we've kind of seen has become a strategy of, of Democrats who have often uh, uh, fought the maps in Texas, really regardless of what they ultimately look like.
0: Yeah. Um, when people say it deprives, or these lines deprive, uh, a person of the right to vote, it sounds like what they're really saying is, um, it deprives us of the chance to, uh, practice racial politics because we want to be able to go into a, a community and know that it's majority this or majority that and if you've spread if you've if you've spread that population across many districts it makes it harder for us to play those cards
6: yes and perhaps the, the great irony to these lawsuits and to these complaints is that uh, you know a lot of the the real kind of racism is is really coming from those that look at these lines that are drawn uh, in a fairly partisan manner uh, and then translate that over to of course uh, it's 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 you know certain racial groups of course uh, that's why it's done <laughs>
0: So the ramification for this, as texasscorecard.com points out, is even if Texas prevails, if this is drawn out over a period of time, it may delay uh, next spring's primaries, right?
6: Yes, that's the most immediate uh, sort of potential consequence we could see here. Um, Those primary elections are slated for March 1st. Uh, which isn't really that far away when you consider that you've got early voting starting in the middle of February. You've got a filing deadline coming up next week. What you could see is a court uh, potentially delay those elections into April or May or even later as they work through the case.
0: Very interesting. We'll follow that at texasscorecard.com. Brandon Walton's managing editor there. Brandon, thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk to you again. Uh, coming up, a look at KTSA Time Saver Traffic. And um looks like CNN may have another host to replace because um, Jussie Justice Smollett uh, says Don Lemon over at CNN has been helping and advising him during his hate crime hoax investigation, much in the same way that uh, Chris Cuomo was helping and advising uh, his brother, the then governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. So does this end for Don the way it ended for Chris? Well, no, it, it, it doesn't. I hate to spoil that for you, but we'll talk about it and many other things and your votes in the junior poll. We're asking you today on the poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, do you think a Pearl Harbor type of attack, God forbid, would unite the country today the way it did 80 years ago? Would that have the same effect on people? And would it end divisions or at least suspend disunity and bring people together and put everybody on the... Do you think that would be the effect? And I know I'm I'm oversimplifying what happened. I don't mean to imply that back then everybody agreed on everything, but it, it certainly was a unifying, galvanizing moment. Would it be that if, again, we hope it never happens, if it happened today? Pearl Harbor Day, 80 years later... I think I've told this story before. My my dad was a young man, a a, a boy, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. He was, I think, about 16, 15 or 16. Yeah, 15, I guess. He was in high school. He um, And he used to tell this story years later about how um, when everybody went back to school, Everybody was talking about this attack, and everybody was angry and fired up, and the teachers in the classroom were breaking down to the kids what this, you know, what had happened and what this meant. And he said that back in the day, at least where he went to high school, um, what was going on in the world was part of the discussion, what was happening in Europe, what what? Hitler was doing what was happening to democracy in Europe was part of the discussion, that, that, and we were aware of it, and it was talked about. But he said after the Pearl Harbor attack, he and his friends knew that when they were old enough, as soon as they were old enough, they were going to enlist. And he did. When he was seventeen, he enlisted in the navy. And and I don't I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging on him. I know there's millions of stories like his but he was he was a second generation immigrant his family had no military you know tradition at all they were new in this country his parents had only been in this country a couple of decades and there was no nothing in his life no one he knew no person of influence where you could say well my uncle got me interested in the marines or i had a Uh, you know, a grandfather who served in, in, in the army or whatever. There was nothing like that. This moment became the defining moment for him and his, his buddies. And it says something about how personally they took the Pearl Harbor attack. And it makes me think that probably a lot of people took it that way in 1941. When I hear people talk about our country today, and again, I'm generalizing, I'm not saying everybody, but you hear a lot of people today talk about our country like it's just a country. Yeah, I live here. Yeah, okay, I, yeah, if you gotta put a label on me, I'm an American, but that's not my government. That's not my country. That's just, this is just where I live. I didn't even choose it. It was chosen for me. And I wonder if people would take what happened in the way that they took it 80 years ago. Because that had everything to do with the response. And like Victor Davis Hansen said, that was the, that was a big part of the miscalculation of the Japanese. See, they had looked at our intelligentsia. They had looked at our elites. And they had decided that, well, they, they just don't seem to have any fight in them. They're letting Europe fall to the Nazis. These are the countries that they came from, and they don't seem to care. There's no fight in these Americans. But they they didn't know about guys like my dad and his friends and what we now call the greatest generation. They didn't factor that in or they didn't understand that. And maybe we didn't understand it. You know, when I think about the, the state we're in now, It's not that different. We've let a lot of things go. We've lost a lot of credibility in the world, and we've let a lot of things go. We have a very powerful military, much more so than we did in 1941. But we are also perceived, after Afghanistan and some other things, we are now perceived in the world as a country that is more interested in being comfortable and having you know, Wi-Fi than in standing up and fighting and getting our hands dirty our leaders are perceived as bread and circus leaders they're just trying to keep people happy you know they're just trying to stay, trying to win the next election stay in no no real big vision with these people that we elect in this country today right i mean generally that's true right that's how we look to the world so i wonder if the x factor is still there would people take it personally and would that in turn drive a response that a, that a, an enemy attacking us today would not have foreseen In other words, do they get us? Are they reading us right or not? Because in 1941, they didn't read us right. And that was what happened to Japan. 210-599-5555, your thoughts on that? The Justice Smollett trial goes on in Chicago. In testimony uh, this week, he has talked about receiving and exchanging texts from CNN anchor Don Lemon. They were friends. He says that Don Lemon informed him that the Chicago police did not believe his story, his ridiculous story about how two black MAGA bros were walking around the streets of Chicago at 2 o'clock in the morning with bleach and rope, just in case they would encounter a star from Empire, <laughs> so they could hit him a little bit and um, not steal anything from him and not leave any marks. Have you seen the Asendero brothers? Does it look to you like if they attacked you, you'd have no marks? It looks to me like they'd have to hose you down off the sidewalk. So Don Lemon is telling him in these texts they're not buying it. And they're exchanging ideas about what to do about that. And Don Lemon's spin on this now is, I was just trying to help a friend. And, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. But people are asking the question, how is that different from Chris Cuomo advising Governor Cuomo? Is it different? What do you think? 210-599-5555. Where the hell does CNN find these people? Honest to God. I mean, really. Um, so the, the 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 stated reason for Chris Cuomo being fired was that they had found some new sexual misconduct allegations against him. But underneath that was also this bad, you know, situation where he hadn't been forthcoming, and his bosses claimed they didn't know that he was acting as a media advisor to his brother. This guy, Don Lemon, has a Sexual, um, assault case pending against him and has now been revealed to have been acting as a media advisor. Instead of covering the news, he is part of the story. Instead of distancing himself so that he can be impartial and have perspective on Jesse Smollett, he decided to participate. You know, you can, you can do that, but then you've got to tell everybody you're doing that, right? You've got to wear that label and recuse yourself from reporting the story. You've got to say, well, look, folks, I'm not going to be uh, telling you about this case because I'm involved in this case. And you might say, well, Jack, that sounds weird. I've never heard anyone do that. Well, they don't. They don't do it. That would be truth in advertising. That would be putting an honest label on what you're doing and who you are. You know, a gazillion years ago when I was a kid, we would watch the, um, I forget what they even called it, it was was the nightly news on ABC. It wasn't World News Tonight, which is what they call it now. But they had this deal for a while where their anchors would do a commentary. And when it was time for the, the news was over, and when it was time for the commentary, they wrote commentary on the screen in big letters. And the anchor even turned to a different camera. I mean, if he could have, he would have put on a different jacket. They were so obviously trying to say to you, now this is something different. Now I'm, I'm stepping out of my role. I just told you what happened today. But now I'm stepping over here to, to just tell you what I think about it. And you don't see that anymore. It's all intermingled, right? But one of the things the Don Lemon story tells us is that Chris Cuomo wasn't the exception at CNN. He was the rule at CNN. I mean, now I think it's safe to assume that probably anybody over there who has any kind of relationship with the people they cover uh, feels they are perfectly fine advising that person, coaching that person. We know years ago Donna Brazil was sharing debate questions. I mean, how much more do you need? Before What, what do we need to stop re- even referring to these people as journalists? They're political activists who are on a network that used to be a news network. This is the network that broadcasts live from the Tiananmen Square uprising in 1989. This is the network that Peter Arnett was on dodging missiles when uh, Desert Storm was breaking out in Baghdad. And now these are the people that are just basically Democratic Party activists where they have the Halloween costume on every day as a journalist. And they're using sources... To relay information to someone who's accused of a crime, this isn't just friendship. I mean, if I have a friend who's in trouble, I might, I might call to buck him up. I might call to give him a pep talk or make him laugh or tell him I care about him. Th- these, these two were using sources and trading on the perceptions. I guess some people still had that they're reporters to get information. Hey, I'm just interviewing you. I'm just trying to get some facts. I'm just covering it. and then turning around and giving that gratis to their friends. And um unless Jesse Smollett is lying about all this and I haven't heard Don Lemon say that he has and he could be. I mean, he could be lying about it. But it's, to me it's 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 as bad a problem as Chris Cuomo had. Of course, Chris Cuomo was a white guy, and that meant that moving against Chris Cuomo was going to be a lot easier. CNN does not want to have to raise a hand to Don Lemon, and I don't think they will. If if I had to guess right now, I would say they probably won't. 599 Now, I wish I had thought of this, and I can't believe that I didn't. But um, Ed Driscoll, a blogger I like to read, says um, this whole thing reminds him of a movie. And it's a movie I actually really like. You may have seen it before. But in 1982, Martin Scorsese made a movie with Robert De Niro, who he had worked with on many other movies, like Taxi Driver and others, and Jerry Lewis. And a bunch of other stars, Tony Randall was in it, a bunch of other people were in this movie. It was called The King of Comedy. And in the movie The King of Comedy, Robert De Niro plays this very scary, sort of mentally ill guy, lives in his mom's basement, named Rupert Pupkin. And he has this rich fantasy life of being a star comedian, of being the funniest man in the world, of being the king of comedy. But he's nothing. He's nobody. He's a loser to everybody who knows him. And he gets this idea. He wants to be on this show that is the leading late-night comedy show. It's it's obviously meant to be the Johnny Carson Tonight Show, but they give it a different name, and the the, the actor who plays the host is is Jerry Lewis. And he gets this idea that he can get on this show by kidnapping Jerry Lewis. And so as part of his ransom, he demands to be allowed to perform his stand-up comedy on the show. And he, he pulls this off. He gets Jerry Lewis. He ties him to a chair. And he prepares to make his television debut. Here's a, here's a moment from the King of Comedy.
2: Probably sort of a gag. We get that all the time. Well, I find that strange, you know. But it's typical. Because that's the way
1: they treated you. Because I'll let you in on a little secret. That's
2: the way they treated me. And now look where we are.
1: All right, Thomas.
2: Audrey, this is Jerry Langford. Get Bert Thomas on the phone, and quickly.
1: Martino, I know it's you, and I'm much too busy for fun and games today.
2: Goodbye. Do you hear what I said? This is Jerry Langford. Now, get Bert Thomas, and I'm not kidding. It's not a gag. It's serious. Now, move it, and do it quick. I'm
1: I'm I'm sorry, Mr. Thomas. He absolutely insists on talking to you. I cannot get rid
2: of him. Okay, I'll take it. Martino, you know better than to. Bert, I said, this is Jerry. Jerry Langford, and I'm in deep trouble. Now, you best pay attention. Yeah, I am listening. Uh, now, wait a minute. Uh, I want to ask you something. Oh, What do we call our second cameraman? We call our second cameraman Helen Keller. His favorite color is plaid. Helen Keller, plaid? What is that? When someone does an impression of me on the phone, the only way they're going to know it's really me is by that clue. Now listen, Bert. Listen carefully. I have a gun... At my head, if a man who identifies himself as the king cards upside down:
0: So that's Jerry Lewis telling the uh, TV people, "You've got to put him on." The rest of the sto- I'm not going to give away the whole movie, but the rest of the story goes that Rupert Pupkin gets his wish. He gets his moment of fame. He gets to do his monologue on national television. And Ed Driscoll's point was um, Jussie Smollett is the king of comedy come to life. Now, he wasn't a nobody, but he, he thought he could stage a crime to leapfrog himself into a higher career status or to become a household name. And that's really what this whole thing is about. Underneath it all... This guy is the king of comedy come to life. And Martin Scorsese, not for the first time, saw all this coming 40 years ago. This whole obsession with celebrity and what it will drive people to do and the intoxication of it. So if you uh, have not seen King of Comedy and you want to watch it, turn your radio down for a minute because I, I don't want to do a spoiler on you, all right? I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you what happens. So, Rupert Pupkin does his, he goes on this late night show that's, that's obviously the Tonight Show, but they don't call it that. He does his comedy routine. He jokes about how he has Jerry Langford tied up. And that's the only reason he's out here on stage. And the audience is roaring with laughter. They think this is the funniest thing they've ever heard. They're loving his routine. It's a sick, weird, comedy routine it's real when you when you watch it you're making a face but it it slays and the moral of the story is it doesn't matter what you do to enter show business if you become famous people will forget what you did and at the end of the movie we learn that even Rupert Pupkin is going away to prison when he gets out he's a huge star Because everybody thinks he's hilarious, and now everybody knows who he is. And I don't know if Martin Scorsese was trying to make a commentary on our current culture, but he did. Look at all the people who are famous for really being infamous. Look at all the people that have done terrible things are rewarded with one gig after another, one star turn after another. Think Al Sharpton. And that's probably what Jussie Smollett was thinking. All I have to do is pull this off. And more money, more fame. And even if it does blow up in my face or it does look a little sketchy, I'll be all right. Because people forget what you did to get there. All they see is that you got there. Rupert Pupkin, king of comedy. That's where we're at. I'm just saying. 210-599-5555. Great observation by Ed Driscoll. All right, uh, Mark is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Mark, good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon, Jack. Thanks for taking my call. I always enjoy your uh, common sense. Um, I just want to make a comment about the Pearl Harbor, um, uh, that if things were the same today, uh, would our country have the same will as what was back in 1941, 42 in that era? I, I think that we have a very strong-minded country, but I just don't think that our politicians really have the stomach for anything like that anymore. Uh, mm. I think that this country is, is divided, that the, 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 the groups that exist these days uh, seem to be much different than what there was back in, in, in the day of my grandfather.
0: Do you think, Mark, that if the country reacted the way the country reacted 80 years ago, the politicians, regardless of who and how they are, would basically, they would see it as a no-brainer? Uh, people are angry? they want to strike sure. back, we're, we're, they're, sure. they're willing to sign up and enlist, and we're going we're gonna to use that, and we're going to strike back. I mean, would they, would they really stand against that? Because I agree with your analysis no. of them, but I wonder if they would dare stand in the way of it.
3: Well, you're absolutely right, and I think that that's the, the point, is, is that we would have to have that type of unity and feeling inside as a group of people. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems like today we're just so divided among each other on views, uh, that, you know, you're right. It, I, I, I would like to think that we could come together as a country and do that. But I just, you know, I just think it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a different time and, and I don't know if people care.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think you're asking the right question, Mark. And I appreciate your call. I appreciate your kind words too. See, the thing that's, the thing that's clear is that, Those Americans who are currently in our military, and this is an all-volunteer military, and they've all enlisted, I shouldn't say all, most of them have enlisted in a time where we're already at war. Okay, Unless you enlisted before 20 years ago, you enlisted in a time of war. So I'm not talking about them. I'm I'm setting them aside. I, I, I know we can count on them. But Pearl Harbor wasn't about the men under uniform at that moment. It was about guys like my, my dad and his his schoolmates. They were itching to get into a uniform and to join a service that they had not even thought about. He said that, it was, that was the furthest thing from their mind. No one in their neighborhood did that before 1941. And so that's the thing I wonder about. I wonder if people feel a sense of ownership about this country. I wonder if people would feel that they had been struck personally. I wonder if people would feel the the visceral response. Because that drove everything else. You can say whatever you want about Roosevelt and the politicians of that time. But what drew and, and the industrialists and the planners and the way we got to where we were building 1 b24 an hour at Willow Run in Detroit, but the thing that drove all that was that Americans were enraged instead of cowed. Americans took it personally and didn't look at it coldly and analytically and say well that's really not our problem or that's a, that's a long way away or we don't really have any thing in common with those people. Sorry it happened to those people over there in the Pacific or over there in Europe, but that's not our deal. So that's what I wonder about. What do you think? Do you think that a Pearl Harbor type of attack today would unite the country as in 1941? This is the 80th anniversary of the Japanese uh, attack in Hawaii that sank uh, several battleships, Arizona, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Maryland. Um, I'm going to leave something out. Nevada, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and um, and by the way, missed the three carriers we had in the Pacific at the time, uh, which was really fateful because those turned out to be much more important in the conduct of the war. And I think had they gotten the carriers instead of or along with the battleships, you're talking about a much longer recovery and um, longer to engage the Japanese. But because we had the carriers, we were able to begin the, you know, giving it back to them much, much sooner. Jeff's on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jeff, good afternoon.
5: Good afternoon, Jack. Um, I, I I would lay at the feet of technology and urbanization the fact that we are all questioning how we would come together if another Pearl Harbor happened and two examples that i think exemplify that for me one is a story that i casually came across it seemed like five or six or seven years ago about some guy i think he was in dallas who decided he was going to live in his apartment for a year and never leave he was confident everything that he would need could be brought to him The urbanization, that's the the tech part. We think we don't need anybody else because technology will give us everything we need. So there's that disconnect. Mm -hmm. The urbanization component is you find that feeling in in urban America. But when you go into rural America, Mm -hmm. I've got relatives who are farmers. And they've got tractors that are at the top end of technology, uh, the one that I speak to regularly kids me that within 10 years, he's going to be farming from his kitchen table in his pajamas with a joystick.
0: Jim, I'm almost I out of time, be- so kind of bring it to the point we're going to here. Where are we going with this?
5: Um, in urban America, there is a sense we need each other. When some uh-huh. husband dies, everybody around helps the wife farm right. the land. You don't feel that kind of, if I'm in trouble and I need help, you don't find that in urban America because everybody feels isolated. I don't need yeah.
1: you.
5: You don't need me because tech will provide me everything I need. And it's just, I think, going to get worse as urban America becomes more and more of America. the yeah. sense, that, Don't come to me for help because I'm not coming to you for help because I got my okay. iPhone, Wi-Fi, and that's all I need.
0: So maybe it's kind of the, uh, the whole, when we see people in trouble now, our inclination is to get out our phone and video them. That, yeah. that's kind of emblematic of our time. And, um, and that maybe is, is an indication. Okay. So you, you, you would probably, I guess I'm, I'm assuming here, you would probably say, well, no, people would not take it personally, would not say I'm running down to enlist. Um, that's our question on the poll kind of. Just and and again, it's it's a very broad question. It's very general, but do you do you sense that Americans today would respond to something like Pearl Harbor the way Americans 80 years ago did? We're not the same people, different time, everything's different. But but would that have the same effect on us that it had on them? Because they were 1940 people, they weren't World War II people. They were people living in peace. This was the furthest thing from their mind. But it, it's how they reacted, it's how they immediately transformed that you wonder about today. It's a wonderful organization called Wreaths Across America that's looking for some volunteers out at the Fort Sam National Cemetery. Uh, and Judy Carlisle is with us right now in the KTSA, Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Judy, uh, good evening to you. Thank you for uh, coming on. And tell us a little bit about Wreaths Across America and what you're asking people to do.
7: Thank you for having me on. First of all, Reese across America, truly and absolutely without question is my heart. Um, we are we are totally volunteers and we all are here to help honor, remember and not ever forget our fallen because D-Day is today and we can never let any of those folks be forgotten either. And so to to remember, honor and teach is the the greatest mission that you can really have to remember those that have fallen honor those that are serving and have served and most of all to teach our children the price of freedom because mm-hmm. our freedom is not free and to be able to go out to fort sam with wreaths across america and take a wreath and and put it on a headstone re- speak that name out loud because a soldier dies twice when they take their last breath and when the, their name is never spoken again so to be able to remember them and honor them is the greatest thing that you can ever do. And speak that name, read their accomplishments, lay that wreath on a headstone, mm-hmm. step back and simply say thank you. It will change your heart like nothing you have mm-hmm. ever done.
0: Now, I understand that you're looking for volunteers for, um, is, it, is it next weekend? It's not this coming weekend?
7: It's next weekend, the 17th and 18th. The 17th, the trucks will come in. We we'll, we need help to unload them. We need to get all the wreaths unpacked and get them staged and ready for Saturday morning. We will, um, we've got to pick up all the boxes. We've got to get everything cleaned up in that cemetery and make sure that we leave it the way we found it. And then Saturday morning, there will be a ceremony at 11 o'clock. We would love to have everyone come and join us and help us remember these these fallen and help us con- continue to honor them. And each one of us take a child and teach them how to lay a wreath properly and how to, to be able to be cognizant of what they're doing and know the price of their own freedom. Yeah. So um, to lay the wreath, be part of the ceremony, it's incredible. It truly will take your breath away. You
0: can't write it on a piece of paper. Right. Well, and I, I think you make a great point about including our kids or bringing kids uh, because, you know, what better, more visual way of bringing home the stuff we try to tell them about than to see that and be a part of that. Um, and um, if folks want to volunteer, Judy, what would be the way they would I, – because I know you all have a Facebook page and things, but what's the best way for people to, to step up and volunteer?
7: Just show up. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. Just come and join us and come and be part of us. Come and be part of the Reese Across America family. The greatest thing is just because, you know what? It's Christmas. It is Christmas. And mm-hmm. that is when everyone's hearts are the most raw that they've ever been, mm-hmm. is losing a loved one, having to lay a loved one to rest, we all come together and we're all joined as one and it's all because of one heart string and it's because we're there to honor. Mm-hmm. And so just come and be part of Reese. You don't have to sign up, just show up, but you want to okay. get there early so we can get everybody in and get them parked. Stay tuned on our Facebook page, Reese across America, San Antonio. In the next few days I'm going to have a lot of things to announce. Make sure you stay in tuned with that page. Because we've got a, I've got a lot of things to say within the next right. few days that will answer everybody's questions about everything for the next weekend.
0: Excellent, excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us, Judy. Thank you for doing it, and I hope you get a big turnout.
7: It's a blessing that you honestly cannot cannot even describe, and I we look for probably at least twenty thousand people out there this year. We had mm. we had between sixteen and seventeen in two thousand nineteen. And because we didn't, we we couldn't have a ceremony last year because of COVID. So I really truly believe that we'll have that many people this year, and just <clears throat> excuse me, just to be able to
4: right.
7: be out there and share that remembrance with everyone is so special, because everyone you touch is is united in one way, and it's yeah. all about our heartstrings.
0: Thank you, Judy. Thank you for coming on. Reefs Across America, San Antonio on Facebook. All the information will be there. Uh, and it's for not this coming weekend, but next weekend. And if you think about it, a lot of kids will be out of school as of the 17th. Uh, so you, you know, you could, you could maybe, uh, say, Hey, you're not going to have homework. <laughs> you're looking for something to do. We don't need to go to the mall again. Let's do this. Let's do this as a family or let's do this maybe as a grandparent with a grandchild. Uh, Wreaths Across America, San Antonio, on Facebook.
1: Frosted
0: window panes,
1: candles gleaming inside, painted candy canes on the tree. Santa's on his way, he's filled his sleigh with things.
0: Things for you and for me That's one of my my big favorites, the Christmas Waltz. A lot of people have sung it. It was written for Frank Sinatra. I got to tell you a funny story about this song, because I always think of this when I hear it. I hope you won't think this is too weird or goofy, but when my daughter was really little, and you know how when kids are a certain age, you put them to bed at night, but you stay until they fall asleep? and they want you to talk to them or tell them a story or or just stay till they fall asleep you know so she had that little phase where um she would want me to tell a story or she would want me to sing and i'm not a very good singer and i don't know i know you're shocked to hear that <laughs> i don't really know very many songs so th- when that started i had to rack my brain to think of a song i knew the words to besides happy birthday and I realized that I know some Christmas songs. Those are the those are the songs I do know. And so I would sing her the Christmas waltz. I don't know what time of year it was. It wasn't Christmas time. And all these years later, I think she would probably wonder why did he sing Christmas songs to me at bedtime. But those were only those were the only songs I knew the words to. I knew a few a few like, Carpenter's songs and stuff like that. I used those too. But you know. I had to sing what I knew. And I cannot hear the Christmas waltz now without thinking of that. He he does do a better job with it, much, much better. So um, a lot of people probably don't know that, and and you would only know this, I think, if you went to the Pearl Harbor Memorial, but of the um, roughly 2,400-plus Americans who were killed in that attack, about 1,100 of them are entombed in the Arizona, um, and remains are still being recovered and interred even to this day. Today, for example, a seaman by the name of Charles Saunders from Winnie, Texas, was among uh, the remains that were interred at Pearl Harbor. It was 80 years ago, but they're still they're still doing that work. It goes on the Science and the technology has gotten better, but they are still working on, it's taken all this time to really measure and deal with the human toll. And so we've been asking about the attack 80 years ago and how it would be received by Americans today if something like that happened today. Here is the speech that, uh, or some of the speech, President Roosevelt gave the next day uh, to Congress and over the radio to the American people.
1: I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God.
0: So would people take it as personally and respond in all the ways they did, not just young guys going down and enlisting? My dad had to wait. He and his buddies had to wait. Uh, So it was December 1941 when Pearl Harbor happened. He enlisted, I think it was July 1943, and even then he was a little underage. Um, Would people feel that sense that this is my country, you've attacked me, us, Is, is it different now? And I know I'm generalizing, and I know for some people, of course, it's not different. But you wonder in the big picture, have we, have we become less emotionally, uh, invested in the idea that this is our country? And are we more used to now thinking about these things like, well, you know, um, yeah, we they bombed us, but we've bombed other countries and yeah, they did this, but we do that and you know, you hear people talk about a lot of equivalencies. And they've been they've been taught not only in school but by the culture to think in shades of gray. Well, no country is pure as the driven snow. No country is perfect. All countries do bad things and this is just a little worse than maybe what we do. You know, I, I wonder about that kind of gray thinking or relativity, and do we have that today? We're going to talk about it coming up uh, in the next um, hour and get your votes in the JR poll on that. Um, prince Harry. <laughs> I just had to bring this up. It's so stupid. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, the prince formerly known as Harry now lives in California in a multi-million dollar mansion. He's got a bunch of endorsement deals. He's got some show-up job that he does. And um, he's now doing um, life coaching, which is, I mean, you couldn't make this up on a Saturday Night Live skit, right? A member of the British Royal Family is your life coach. Anyway, he says people should quit their jobs if it would bring them joy. Many people around the world are stuck in jobs that don't bring them joy, says Harry. Harry. And you should definitely quit that job if it's not bringing you joy, because mental health is important. Forgetting the fact that this is somebody who um, literally was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, is set for life, um, is telling people to whom he can't relate at all that they should quit a job, and even if they don't have the means to support themselves, it'll make them much happier. Forget about the stress of wondering where your next meal will come from, which could be bad for your mental health. I mean, it's unbelievable, the lack of awareness. Um, Hopefully, no one is counting on Harry. Nobody's saying, you know what? That's it. I, I wasn't sure I was going to quit, but I heard what Harry said. I'm going in there tomorrow, and Telling the boss what all. The federal judge in Georgia says, um, doesn't believe the president has the authority to issue such an executive order. So the contractor mandate's been enjoined. The CMS mandate's been enjoined. OSHA has been stayed. uh The federal employee mandate's been uh delayed to next year. Mask mandates are back in the news after the governor of Oregon Kate Brown was seen over the weekend at an LGBTQ event without hers at the same time that her administration is considering a permanent mask mandate in Oregon. You may be you may be uh you know thinking well how much longer or how many more weeks or months how many more variants but in Oregon they're already moving on to what if we just make it permanent the Medical director for the Oregon Health Authority tells KATU Television that permanent doesn't mean literally permanent, it just means indefinite. Maybe they'll just get to a point where they'll simply say, faces are banned. So, okay, instead of a mask mandate, we're going to have a face ban. You must not show your naked face. It's It's obscene to have an uncovered face. I mean, that seems to be what we're headed for, right? And then it gets me to thinking, as I watch the mandates for vaccines and masks be uh, basically experimented with and chewed over, I wonder what the next mandates will be. I'm looking past COVID. I'm not sure it necessarily will be a mandate about a virus or an illness. What will be the next thing that they get tired of waiting for us to do? We're not complying fast enough. We're not converting eagerly enough. They've tried, they've, they've given us all their propaganda and it hasn't, hasn't moved the needle. Remember when President Biden grumped at us that he was losing patience with Americans? Well, what will be the next thing? I, I think it could be electric cars. I think they're gonna get, they're gonna get to a point where people aren't adopting electric cars fast enough. You know, the average household income for people that own an electric car is about $150,000 a year. That's, what, like more than twice the national average. So we're not going to do this, move to this, adopt this fast enough. And when that happens, I I wonder if that'll be the next mandate. What do you think? 210 599 We haven't talked a lot about this, but obviously we got the news over the weekend about the death of, Bob Dole, the 1996 Republican presidential candidate, longtime Kansas senator, one time the Senate majority leader, uh, World War II veteran. It's always amusing to me, and I know that's a terrible word to use, but it's always amusing to me to watch the way a Republican is eulogized in the mainstream media. When Bob Dole died He was bipartisan and a bridge builder, and these were the days when the parties cooperated. He was an effective, savvy senator who knew how to get things done. I'm old enough to remember when they hated Bob Dole. They ridiculed and mocked him. He was seen as being sarcastic and bitter and and negative, In fact, a lot of people think Gerald Ford chose him as his running mate in 1976 precisely to be that kind of attack dog against Jimmy Carter. And the coverage of Dole when he ran against Bill Clinton in 96 was a combination of ridicule and questioning his age. By the way, he was 73 at the time. He'd be a spring chicken compared to the people running for and serving as president now. But... What happened to Bob Dole was he died. And when you die as a Republican, um, the demonization dies too. When you have power, you're dangerous and evil. When Ronald Reagan had power, he was a menace to world peace, but when he died, he was a visionary who saw us through the end of the cold war you don't even have to die you just have to lose your grip on power george w bush was a war criminal and an illegitimate president but now he's a really nice guy who's besties with michelle and paints pictures mitt romney almost became president and he was an out of touch uh you know greed hound when he was Possibly a threat to Obama's second term, but now Mitt Romney's a just a fantastic guy. And they did it with Bob Dole. Now he's a great guy because, because he's it's over. The only good Republican is a dead one or one that has no chance of ever attaining power in the eyes of the media. That's the only way you become a good Republican. And, and what that should mean to Republicans today is don't try. Don't cultivate these people Don't don't hope you can be their friend Don't look for their approval You'll get it You just won't be around when you do 210-599-5555 Alright, so The Pearl Harbor poll question And Alex wants in on that on KTSA Alex, good evening to you, sir Merry
4: Christmas,
0: Jack Merry Christmas Well
4: Being a veteran I hate to say this, but you couldn't even, you would never get the result you got after Pearl Harbor in America today. And I'm going to tell you the easiest and biggest example is COVID-19. You had a whole nation roll over in the name of health. This is to protect you and keep you from getting COVID, a, a disease, that is 99.95 survivable. Mm-hmm. The only people that are in danger from that disease are people with comorbidities mm-hmm. and health problems. And it's been proven. It's, that's not conjecture. That's following the science.
0: So what you're saying is the, do the, the Americans follow- of today would not want to get into a fight like Americans of 1941 were itching to get into.
4: No. They would not. In another,
0: example, even though, but but now, but now, to use your comparison, to use your comparison, it's it's not exactly apples to apples because um, what happened in nineteen forty one was a deliberate surprise attack that killed thousands of of American servicemen, our brothers, our sons, our neighbors, our schoolmates, and so you don't think that would galvanize or or change people's mindset in an instant.
4: Okay, so you just made my point for me. What do you think COVID was? That was a biological attack on the... Well, we didn't... Yeah,
0: wait a minute, though. Wait a minute, though, Alex. I, I We didn't... Wait a minute, though. Hold on. Hold on. We didn't know that the minute we heard about COVID. The first thing we heard about COVID was that there was a virus in our midst. We are learning that it was released by China, and I agree with you. In that way, it is a kind of Pearl Harbor. But I'm talking about that moment when Americans learned that the bombing had happened and guys like my dad and maybe somebody in your family said as soon as I can, I'm gonna run down there and enlist, you don't think it would have that effect on young Americans today?
4: Okay, so let's use another example, 9-11. And, le- and 20 years later, what do we have in America? You have more division, you have more strife Mm. Less less than a, a quarter of a century after a seminal moment in American history, and you mm. have people literally that want to dismantle this country and and do not mm. make any bones mm. about it. They'll come mm. on TV and tell you mm. this is the worst country on planet yeah. Earth, and you have well
0: nine eleven wow. did nine eleven did lead to a lot of 9-11, 9-11 did lead to a lot. I don't have the numbers, but it did lead to a lot of enlistments. You know that, right?
4: Oh, I do absolutely. Okay. But twenty so, years later, what do you have?
0: Right, you don't, but, have,
4: that say, you don't have that same.
0: But twenty years after Pearl Harbor after is not I what we're talking. But twenty years after Pearl Harbor is not what we're talking about. We're talking about we're talking about that moment. The way, in other words, when I, and, and and look, Alex, I'm not trying to argue with you, and I, I'm not trying. I know I will not change your mind, so it's cool. I'm just making the point. Are people unable to take personally? viscerally what is done to their own country do they not feel that 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 is their country
4: all right some of them will but the majority of them
0: majority would not okay all right i I accept your answer i'm not trying to change it it. i just wanted to yeah no i i hear what you're saying and i don't i don't think you're i don't think you're wrong alex i'm just i'm just giving you a chance to make the point i don't think you're wrong and i appreciate your call i do Um, Yeah, I I do think there is less sense of how dare anyone hit my country. And there's much more of a, well, I'm a citizen of the world. And we need to know our place. And Japan needs room. And it needs oil. And it needs natural. And who's to say they're any worse than we are? Maybe Maybe they're better people than we are. Maybe they're more advanced than we are. Or maybe it's their turn, maybe it's the Japanese century. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's how young people have been set up today. Now, I don't know what would happen, but I can see Alex's scenario because that's that's the popular way to think of things and view things. Something happens to this country. Our first inclination is not, oh, no, you didn't. It's, well, maybe we brought that on. Maybe the, you know, I didn't vote for this guy that's in office, and and maybe it's his disastrous foreign policy. I mean, I think that cuts both ways, doesn't it? A few more days left for Wrapping with Jack. Hope you'll hit that button at KTSA.com. Give what you can right now while you're thinking of it, because, uh, again, we don't want to leave any families behind. We don't want to have to cut off or, or draw a line and say we've only got enough for... This many families or this many people served by Family Service Association, and you can help us make that difference. And 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 remember, the gift that person unwraps on Christmas probably will be the only gift they get, the only gift they unwrap. We're giving each other so many things. This will be one gift that makes the biggest difference, and you can do it by going to ktsa.com. Click on the. Wrap it with Jack Button. It's presented by Quarter Moon Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning, Institute for Functional Health, River City Oral Surgery, Copenhagen Furniture. Uh, So a lot of different opinions about this Pearl Harbor question, 210-599-5555. Bob is on the radio. Bob, good evening to you.
2: Good evening to you, Jack. Uh, One one thing prior to uh, Pearl Harbor, the United States was not really wanting to get into World War II. And uh, after Pearl Harbor, everybody decided that that lit the fire right there with this country. Uh, my father was only 16 when it happened, but he turned 17. He joined the army, and uh, he was got into Army Air Force, flying B-24s. So, uh, people, I think this country got lit. It was lit up of, of getting the war done and getting it over with.
0: Well, and I—I I, that's why I think when you look at the time, that time, people were living in peace. They had been told there's all these treaties that make war obsolete. You know, we're not going to have—we have the League of Nations. We're not going to have war anymore. Um, the World War One was supposed to be the, the war that ended all wars. I, I just—I wonder if something like that has an effect on people. You can't predict even now. You—you—you you, you just don't know what people's you know collective reaction to that would be.
2: Well, glad with the government we have right now I kind of wonder if uh
0: I don't think it's up to the government I think it's up to what people uh how personally people take it. Cuz no politician's going to stand in the way if if people are are burning you know to to strike back. I don't care who you elect they'll, they'll they they won't stand in the way of that.
2: That's right. Well, it was a uh, That was a turning point right there, and uh, this country became great after after that. It really was. Bob, thank you.
0: Appreciate the call. Thanks for coming on tonight. I, I, you know, if you if you look back at that time, the reason our military was so weak and so small, I mean, we really had an incredibly shriveled capability, and our officer corps was decimated, the best people had left, the people that had stayed were kind of stale and careerist there were um, we, we had very few uh, men under uniform, we had very few serviceable uh, aircraft but the thing that um, the thing that changed was a world at war and conflicts that were far away and places that were just names on a map To people like my dad and his ilk who were not internationalists. (laughs) My dad was a teenager. He wasn't, he had no one to look up to as an example of military service. There was no reason he should have found himself in the Navy. And yet there he was. Because that was a transformative event. And they took it as their responsibility. Um, and you know, um, I, obviously there are, there are still young people like that because that's how a lot of young people responded to 9-11. Um, the question is, does the whole country respond that way, or would it just be the people that are, the 1% that are already inclined toward uh, military service? Is it just the people that are in, you know, ROTC, or just the young kid who right now is already planning on enlisting when he's old enough, or after college, or what have you? Um, or does it have the effect of dr- b- pulling in the guy like my dad who was not on that track and wouldn't have been on that track? KTSA News Time at 640. Coming up this half hour, we'll see how you voted on our Stevens Roofing J.R. poll. Uh, do you think a Pearl Harbor-type attack would unite the country now as it did in 1941? 210-599-5555. Uh, you know, when people talk about what kind of country we are now and how people are now. I, I can't help but bring this up. Did you happen to watch Monday Night Football? And I'll just be very brief about it if you missed it. Uh, The game was in Buffalo. It was bitterly cold. The wind was like 35 to 40 miles an hour, the way it always is in Buffalo at this time of year. It was the Bills and the Patriots. And the, the headline is the Patriots won the game 14 to 10, and the Patriots quarterback, Mac Jones, the rookie, only threw three passes. You have to go back decades to find a, uh, an NFL team winning a game with only three passes, or two, really, completed two out of three. A- and the reason was that it, the winds were so strong, and in any quarter that your team was playing into the wind, the calculation was we just aren't going to put the ball in the air. Buffalo threw all through the game, but I think... Uh, I think Josh Allen only completed around 50% of his passes, so he was way off his normal, uh, you know, production. But here's what's interesting. So I, I know people hate the Patriots, and and even without Brady, they still hate the Patriots. There is all this belly aching and whining in the sports world today about how the Patriots won the game by running the ball. You would think running the ball was cheating. Or running the ball was unorthodox. Or running the ball, nobody does that. They ran the ball ninety-eight percent of the time, and they won the game. They also won the game with a really good defense. And but I, it, it's just it's flabbergasting to me. I mean, hate them if you want, but it's a really bad take to say that if a team wins with its run game, that's not a legit win. That would be like saying a baseball team that drove in its runs with singles and didn't hit home runs. That wasn't a legit win or that's not a real, you know, I mean, that's the kind of wine. If that's who we've become. Yeah, you're right. We're, we're, we're doomed if there's another Pearl Harbor. But, um, it it was an interesting game. And I don't just say that because my team won. It was interesting to watch that kind of football get played. It was kind of old school. Um, Hunter Henry is a tight end for the Patriots, and his wife is expecting uh, their first child, um, I believe, right around the middle of this month. And he has said in interviews that because this is his firstborn, he would choose to be with his wife over playing. It's, It's likely that this baby will be born during the regular year. Um, so would he, he was asked, you know, would you, would you travel with the team? Would you go? He said, no, I definitely need to be with her. I've let the team know that. Um, I, I, I will be there. I would choose to miss a game, even though the team is in the playoff push, to be with his wife for the birth of their child. And, um, this story appealed to me because... I, I only have one child, and um, I was there, and it's one of the best memories I, I, I will ever have. I know that people used to do it differently. My dad and that generation, you know, you, you went to work, your wife went into labor, you might check on her later in the day. You know, that, that was just what they did. He He wasn't there. No one expected him to be there. She didn't expect him to be there. She jokes she didn't want him there. But um, I, I get that that worked for them. I'm not judging that. A lot of dads were not present for the birth of their child. A lot of dads even now aren't present most of the time now because they can't be. But if you can be, I think it's the right I think it's the right call. Um, and now athletes routinely uh, miss... The I'm sorry, routinely attend the birth of their children, um, and miss a game, and I'm okay with that. I think that's a good decision. It's become kind of a hot button topic in New England, and I don't think I, I I really don't think there's much to be upset about. You know, let the guy go, and 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 if anything, if we mean the things we say about family and about. Men stepping up and taking responsibility. And, you know, that came up during the abortion debate. Well, men need to step up. and Well, then, then you want men to think like Hunter Henry is saying. So we wish them well. Hope he's there when it happens. Hope he can be there. So on the JR poll tonight, powered by Stevens Roofing, a lot of votes. Um, we asked you, do you think a Pearl Harbor type of attack would unite the country today as in 1941? Uh, Here's how it uh, added up at the end. No, said 62%. Yes, said 38%. We'll have a new JR poll question tomorrow. We get started at 4 or find it anytime at KTSA.com. Speaking of polls, a new survey uh, just out finds that only 2% of Hispanics refer to themselves as Latinx. A Democratic polling firm, Amandi International, uh did the survey according to Politico.com. 68% in the poll refer to themselves as Hispanic, while 21% prefer Latino or Latina. So one of the left's made-up words is a total non-starter with the group they made it up for. <laughs> See, I... I wondered about that. the very fir- The very first time I heard Latinx, I thought, "Why am I not hearing this from people who are? Why am I hearing it from like you know, you know, Peaches and Cream over on MSNBC?" And 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 sure enough, this is one of those um, woke. You know we we know better than you do. We we we're feeling your pain more than you are uh kind of moments. It's also kinda of condescending, like you you have to be renamed by people who know better. You know, you you can't you can't do that yourself. So uh the polling uh firm warns that uh progressives and Democrats are running a big risk if they continue to use the term Latinx or Latinx. I guess it kind of looks like Latinx. I don't know. It's very strange. It's, New words. Here's a guy who is a um, gynecologist, allegedly. His name is Ryan Stewart. He uh, took to Twitter to virtue signal, I mean to ask women, how he should design his new office. He's designing a new gynecological practice. And he tweeted... I have the opportunity to design my office from scratch. I'm asking women, how would you design and optimize a visit to the, gyneco- uh, the, the gynecologist's office? So it's like, you know, hey, here's my suggestion box. Then I guess he realized the terrible thing he had done. Did you pick up on it? He defined his patients as women. And he apologized for that. Folks have correctly pointed out that I incorrectly said women when what I really should have said was folks who may need gynecologic care. He says he even named his practice with that in mind. It's called Midwest Pelvis. (laughs) That was going to be the name of my next album, Midwest Pelvis. So... So he is getting absolutely ripped on Twitter for um, apologizing for the use of the word women with a lot of people telling him, uh, if you're a gynecologist and you don't know that only women need gynecological services, I probably don't want your services. So, But see, this is what people do now. He knows. It's not that he doesn't know. But this whole birthing persons, chest feeding, all this is not about actually respecting or serving people. This is about curling up into a ball in the fetal position and saying, please don't pick on me. And I remember when feminists used to complain about how society erased women or didn't see women. you remember that? That was a thing where they would say, you know, we're... We refuse to be ignored. We refuse to be erased. And yet it seems like all this monkeying around with the language does that. When you start saying not women, but persons who need gynecologic treatment, isn't that erasing women? I would think women want a gynecologist who knows what he's doing, or she, not one that is busy trying to please his Twitter followers. I've never been to one, but I would imagine that's probably more important. Anyway, we we hope Midwest Pelvis does well. Sounds like, sounds like an Elvis impersonator, doesn't it? Anyway. Um, I hope you have a wonderful night and uh join us back here tomorrow at four. We'll leave you with a little pentatonics as we head out tonight here on five fifty and one oh seven one KTSA.